0: so you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence Squared too. That's notion.com squared.
1: What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to the Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. You're listening to part two of our recent event hosted at the Francis Crick Institute in London, so please jump back and listen to part one if you haven't already. In this episode, we hear questions from the audience on the real-life implications of gene editing and the role society should play in regulating the field. Our host for this conversation was Dr Goody Singh, and she was joined by Tom Whipple, science editor at The Times, Shani Dander, an award-winning disability activist and inclusion specialist, Dr Ganesh Taylor, postdoctoral research scientist at the Francis Crick Institute, and Jimmy Olaher, one of the first people in the world to take part in a life-changing clinical trial using gene therapy to treat sickle cell disease.
2: If you raise your hand, I will be able to see it. But really, what we'd love you to do is to be able to come to the mics, which are in the middle of the room. Of course, if you cannot get to them, please wave and we will make sure that a mic gets to you.
3: In a country like the UK, we can have this conversation back and forth, but there are also rogue countries. There could be rogue labs, which no matter what we decide as a society, they might just go and it could be a big country. And so the consequences of them doing, say, eugenics has a consequence for everybody else in the world as well. If they grow, you know, the Superman or Superwoman, whatever that is, right? How do we deal with that? How do we think about the ethic problems outside our society?
2: That's a fantastic question and doesn't just limit itself to gene therapy. I often think about what's happening in other countries. So um, who wants to take this, this question? Yeah, I, f- I feel like especially after the Human Genome Editing Summit that
4: happened literally last week in this building, I feel like lots of people talked about that basically so well. And also importantly, as Tom said, we already live in a post-human genome edited world, right? There are three girls that live with uh, edited genes on earth already. But The reception was extremely present, and the Chinese government, these experiments were conducted in China, have subsequently changed their legislation and rules about these things and their regulations substantially. But ultimately, we can't. That's the uncomfortable thing about a society all of us, we can't control it. What we can do is we can have conversations, invite people to be part of the conversation and sit around the same table. And things like the the Human Genome Editing Summit were such a great example of that because there were people from all over earth coming to talk about how should we do this? What should we do? These are our concerns, but that's about it because ultimately we don't have any control. We can influence, we can have those conversations, but we don't have a world government.
2: That's that's the reality. Did anyone else want to come in?
5: Um, actually, I want to ask a question, oh. Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to pop in because I think this, this may get to something interesting. <laughs> One thing that I'm thinking listening to you is if we could move on to human genome germline editing into designer babies in some sense. If you could imagine a situation in which it was possible to entirely eradicate sickle cell, not, not to cure it, but given it is such a simple genetic condition, to eradicate it from the earth forever to have permanently evolved humanity out of it,
6: would you do it?
2: No pressure.
6: (laughs) I'll do it every day and twice on Sundays. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Living with sickle cell, you know, even I just mentioned, you know, I have this debate in my head as to what lies ahead in the future with what I've done. But every day, if that decision was placed in front of me to completely eradicate sickle cell for me personally and for everyone else, I would give them that decision. But there's... And I got to be honest and say this is more of my opinion. I, I know a lot of people that live with the disease that have become so enmeshed with the disease, and it's become a part of who they are. And that was actually one of the difficulties I faced after the transplant is this identity of who Jimmy is without sickle cell. So there's going to be that issue at play with patients that have genetic diseases that they Incur at birth, you know, it becomes literally their identity. And I've spoken to patients who are going through hell with sickle cell, but are not interested in having gene editing because they they don't know life without sickle cell.
7: Shawnee, you wanted to come in, yeah. um, So if you had asked me that question, Mm. uh, and I'm someone where there isn't a cure, you know, there's nothing can really take away the condition that I have. I now would answer no, no I wouldn't because I feel like when we ask people that question especially to people that where there isn't a cure I feel like what we're asking them is mm. is your life valuable? Yes. Do you want to live? And I know you probably didn't mean that. Um well I hope you didn't mean that. But even though when people then ask me well you know well, well you're saying you wouldn't have a child with the same condition as you. And the difference is, is that I have a lot of privilege of living in this country. I'm a palatable disabled person. Let's be honest, that comes with privilege, but I've done the work, like I've done the work to be happy with who I am and I wouldn't be who I am without my condition.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, I think it's complicated, isn't it? It's, it's not straightforward. And there's so many things that we are born with in terms of traits that we could select for. And, you know, one of the questions actually from somebody who's watching online is how do we make sure that we don't perpetuate these harmful discriminatory social norms over other things like race, gender, height? You know, this, this is where we're talking about the line. Where do we draw the line? How do we make sure that this, this doesn't happen? Ganesh, do you have any thoughts? How do we make sure that we don't start selecting for things like this?
4: Well, I mean, first of all, there's a question about Can you even select for those things? Can we? (laughs) For some things, sure. But for some things, no. Right now, that's the point. Not everything is, again, we're back to the analogy, right? I have an embryo. I give it all the best possible genes. If I don't feed it, it's not going to be, even if I'd given it every gene on Earth, let's say, or variant on Earth that could make it 6 foot 7, Let's say I wanted that. Um, But, you know, it's not going to change that, right? So there are some things that are within our power and some things that aren't. And there are also moments where there are appropriate technologies. And this is a really great technology to have available as an option, as a tool that is on the table. But again, the existence of a tool does not tell us when
2: we want to use it. 100%. Again, so it comes back to this idea of science being a tool for us as a society to use in ways that we collectively decide are wise.
5: So uh, one of the things I find interesting about this though, is let's say that a proportion of the world do want to do this. They do want to select the children and we have the ability to do it. Let's say, you know, we are able to select children who are consistently 15 IQ points higher Than the the baseline, which would be absolutely massive. Well, that group of the population, which will be in the West because they'll Mm -hmm. be the ones who can afford it, and will also be the ones who've decided I don't have ethical problems with this. Well, you've potentially created the ruling class Mm. and everyone else can opt out of it but then they suddenly find that they're, they're not the ones with the children who are 15 IQ points higher. And I, I used to think that was more of a problem, but now I we think we're going to be completely destroyed by the robots anyway, so it's, it's utterly moot.
2: Now join in for next week on artificial intelligence. <laughs> um, there are more questions within the, the room, so I'd like to, yes,
5: if yep. you... Just building on the point of Thank other you. revolutions going on, we, we've heard that there's great excitement in the lab and there's great ethical challenge. I'm not quite clear, I'd, I'd like your feedback on to what extent it will be a great health revolution in the sense that if we can use CRISPR, we can maybe change the microbiome in our gut and feel healthier. We can help animals be healthier. But I'm not quite clear beyond the 5 million uh, that I think Tommy's saying, yep, yeah, yeah, absolutely, we should have a, a, uh, Jimmy, sorry, a, a cure for. How many people, if the growth in CRISPR that's gone on over the last decade in the lab continues for another decade, beyond that 5 million, how many people potentially do have conditions that that are addressable?
2: Great question. Um, have you counted them? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going to, this is going to sound like a facetious
4: answer, but it's not. Everybody is the point, right? Effectively. Everybody who has DNA and has any kind of health anything situation Existing, pre existing, or simply aging related, all of us are susceptible to the whims and mercies of our bodies, whether we like it or not. And so this tool allows us to invent new technologies, understand those mechanisms better find new solutions and cures and address every single one of those things that has a foot in DNA theoretically. So that's why this is a health revolution. It's so not sexy to be like, yeah, because DNA editing is like amazing and it's not, it's not immediately apparent, but just honestly, take a moment to appreciate this. Anything on earth that has DNA can be edited, right? whether that's the bacteria in our guts, whether it's the animals, whether it's the parasites, the plants, our entire ecosystem, every fish in the ocean, every human on earth, theoretically, should we wish to.
5: And practically in the next decade.
4: Why not? We're already, listen, there's already been people who've had their sickle cell disease cured. The important point is we start with situations where it's deemed ethical because these are just individual bodies. We're not affecting, theoretically, the inheritance. So you start there. And you start with a single gene situation, like sickle cell, something that is very, very obvious. One gene has one error in it. It leads to a debilitating disease. Who wouldn't do something with that? The real heart of this question, the, the quandary that is CRISPR, is you have a tool on the table to cure everything that is possibly encoded in DNA. Importantly, it was also raised that these things can occur spontaneously and whatnot. So it will never cure all disability or all health conditions. That's not the point. But it can definitely provide alternative solutions and whatnot. The point is the tools on the table, once it's out, once it exists, what is more ethical, to use it wisely or to not use it at all? <music>
0: That's why over thirty-seven thousand companies have already made the move, and now, by popular demand, Netsuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com/squared. That's netsuite.com/squared. Netsuite.com/squared. promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee TV.
2: so look we've got lots more questions please do come and ask ask the questions
1: in terms of um if you're to edit say a single cell as we're talking about earlier that's a big discussion at single cell level do you then find out when that's turned into a human body, is those trillion cells enough to find out, okay, have we had an unintended consequence here? Or we'd need to wait several human generations rather than cell generations, several human lifetimes to find out, oh, actually, you know, grandkids from that editing that's gone a bit wrong.
2: Great question. How long do we have to wait to know that we've messed up? It depends. Biology has a way of of showing its hand
4: with time. So effectively, if it's really important, you'll find out pretty quickly. If it's relevant. It might take a bit longer and it depends. It depends entirely, you know, and transgenerational effects do happen. I think something that is very important to keep in mind, though, is bizarrely, I think whenever we talk about these um, sort of hypotheticals where we use this technology and things happen, I think people sort of forget that the tool continues to exist. So it's not that you use it one time and then it's like, oh, no, like we've completely (laughs) messed it all up and there's nothing we can do. That's not how it works. The tool remains there. Once you start tinkering, the tinkering commences. And the important point here is we're already tinkering with everything that we're doing. Like us sitting here in this room right now with the lives that we have led is already a far cry from what nature was intending for us. So just keep that in mind
3: as well.
2: Brilliant. Next question. I was just wondering if you could give a little
3: detail on how this actually happens. So, Jimmy, how big a medical procedure was it? How long did it take? You talked about the number of cells we're talking about. That seems inconceivable that you can do it i understand it in the lab but i was just wondering how does it actually work in a person
2: thank you that is a brilliant question jimmy can we just have your lived experience of what is it like to have gene therapy in a nutshell yeah. for everybody and then we'll talk about uh, it was a mean. pretty
6: cumbersome medical experience um, i think it took about a year they had to go through i had to go through three main parts the first part was the collection where they collected the stem cells and that took about four months and then you go through the conditioning, basically wiping out uh, your system, preparing it for your new edited brand new DNA or stem cells and then the final part will be the infusion where they infuse your new cells and then your, you know, your white cells are knocked out so you need to be in the hospital for a, a long period of time. So it, it was quite a long period, I think altogether it took just about a year.
5: Um, so, so one thing I think is worth saying is, with these cures, you're not that is not every cell in Jimmy's body, and and some of the things that you look at. So, another really promising area is uh, macular degeneration, and you look at that because the eye, first of all, is a contained vessel, so you're just doing it in that. You it's safer for various reasons, and you're looking at just changing the cells in the eye. So, the rest of you would contain the, whatever mutation it is that gives you this degenerative blindness. But the bit of you to which is actually pertinent, where that gene's expressed, is the one that you're making the changes. Um, so that, so you wouldn't be looking to do every, every trillion cells. So o- only a bit of Jimmy is X-Men.
2: <laughs> Even though he feels like an X-Man. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for that clarification. There are more people who want to ask questions, which is fantastic. Thank you so much for coming forward.
8: Thanks so much. Um, One of the things that I was thinking of when listening to this conversation was that actually a lot of other technologies are like this in the sense that the science runs far ahead of the regulations, right? CRISPR was compared to smartphones at the start. And those are also revolutionary in the sense that they give you the full repository of human writing as well as let you communicate instantaneously with everyone in the world. And now the UK and US governments are thinking about maybe, say, uh, putting restrictions on TikTok. So even about sort of designer babies, we might not have that right now, but of course, you know, sex selective abortions have been in practice for a very long time and are actually currently probably more practice outside of the West than within it. So to what extent, you know, we talk about trying to impose order and rules, but isn't in some sense the whole world like, a petri dish. Right here is where the Industrial Revolution started, and we've been dumping greenhouse gases into the the atmosphere for hundreds of years, and we still don't know the consequences. So aren't we being a bit naive when we consider that we might even be able to, like, how optimistic is it to say we will have a rule-based order for this?
5: So one of the things I find fascinating is you can do this yourself. There are people who have CRISPRed themselves for various things, because um, it's tried to. Yes, we don't know how successful yes, they are, um, but yes. you know. It, um,
2: can you just, for the audience's sake, tell them what you mean when you say CRISPR yourself?
5: <laughs> well, they no, have they have bought because the, these aren't. I mean, it's hard, but it's not. Uh, you know, yeah. most decent labs in the country can do this in the world. And you can, you can send off for the DNA target you want. You can send off for the CRISPR-Cas9 system. And I, I don't know how to do it, but you know how to do it. <laughs> yeah.
4: So, I mean, okay, I can't believe I'm about to talk about this in public. Um, so, well, as I said, when, this, when the technology was first published, people were talking immediately about how important this thing is. And alongside that came a movement of people who call themselves sort of biohackers or independent researchers and things like that. They are basically people who are interested in the democratization of this technology, right? Which is a good idea, effectively, right? That's effectively what we're all talking about. this this concern that we have, who has access to these things, to what end? I said at the beginning, the thing that makes CRISPR so special is that it's precise, and then I sort of tacked on, oh, well, it's also quite quick and cheap as well, just like as the throwaway, because the heart of the debate is to do with the precision. But actually, you're completely right, Tom. This is really, really cheap to access. You don't need much in the way of complicated material to be able to just do it on a small scale. So people in the biohacking community and independent research community have been trying to do this and they have successfully, you know, you can, you can genome edit bacteria or yeast or plants and things like that at home. And some people were doing, injecting themselves, in fact. And there was a lot of conversation about that at the time because it was like, what are you doing? Why are you trying to do this? And you know, how are you going to control this? How are we going to control how are we gonna control this? That was the big conversation, the question. And the thing about that community is, and this is effectively the same thing that we're talking about in terms of sort of global regulation points, is how do you control someone? Well, we, we call it society right? That's what we call it. We call it having conversation, having a community, whatever you want to call it. It's what your friends and peers deem to be acceptable. And we have these bizarre mechanisms by which we make it clear to other people that you just don't do that. Or if you do it, we alienate you because we don't like that. And that sounds really non-scientific, but that's the reality of how cultures affect human behavior. This is no different to that, basically, I would say.
3: It's um, a question for um, Jimmy in the first instance. First of all, I just want to say how really, really happy I am for you that you're living a pain-free life and able to enjoy being a fulfilled, pain-free person. So that's, that's fantastic. I was just wondering, you talked about some of the ethical issues that you grappled with post-treatment. You know, is this right? Um, what about everyone else who may need help, who doesn't have access to help, either through by, by means of, because of where they are politically or economically, etc., or through geography. What ethical discussions or debates did you have with your medical practitioners prior to your treatment? And were those um, debates a part of the treatment package? And was your treatment contingent upon these debates? Or did you only really have to think about these issues post-treatment?
2: Really yeah. great question. Is basically, how much did you have to individually think about the ethical issues when it came to your own treatment? Yeah, Jimmy, tell us.
6: Um, to be completely honest, I didn't think about it a lot at all, actually. I was really, really desperate uh, at the time, pre-transplant. Um, my wife was eight months pregnant. Sickle cell had won every battle with me in my life, and fatherhood was a battle I wanted to win. So I went in head first, no questions asked. It hasn't been until I've had the transplant, I have been able to look back and ask myself these questions, like, wow. Look at what I had just done and you know, all the fair points you brought up as to, you know, where I'm from, how they're not gonna get access to this for, for God knows how long. But no, I, I had no um ethical debates with myself. I actually, my wife actually had to force me to read the consent form because I didn't, I just wanted to sign and go. And then she had to force me, listen, you could get all of these crazy things. You know, it said 15 years from now, you can get leukemia and all of these. And I I didn't even care. I just wanted to sign and go.
2: Thank God for your wife. Um, (laughs) um, I just want to make sure that this side of the room, if you've got questions, you're being seen. I just realized I've got my back to you, but is there anyone on this side who wants to ask a question?
8: So, uh, I was wondering, what are the, do you have any examples of specific enhancements, say, for want of a better word, that you could make right now that would make someone better? As, you know, a, lo- a loaded question, but are there any examples you can think of?
2: I'm going to put quotation marks around the better. (laughs) I was
8: was going to say, please
4: define better in this. I mean, I don't know what to say. The classic enhancement narrative revolves around putting genes in that shouldn't be there at all. So, for example, we could... Oh, eyes. There's there's a good one. Okay, so eyes are easy enough to deliver... or easy enough. Relatively easy to deliver into the easiest system, in fact, is, of course, the blood system, which is why we sickle cell. But let's say the eyes. We could probably insert genes that are helpful for making different kinds of, you know that in the back of your eyes, you have rods and cones. They're different receptors for different kinds of light. Yeah, well, different species on Earth have different forms of those that allow them to see different kinds of wavelengths and things like that. Look at this, Tom's on board. Sign him up. No consent form required. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so we could do that. There you go. How's that for a theory? We could insert some genes from other species that are known to have really interesting effects and see what happens. One that's also being discussed a fair bit is to do with um, like space travel. So human beings, sending human beings into space, yeah, it's a thing. You know, if you want to send a manned mission to Mars, you need to change human bodies because we're not exactly adapted to living under intense radiation. We, we live on a planet with a nice soft ozone blanket. Fair enough, it's got a hole in it. But yeah, you know, <laughs> you don't have that out in space. So there's uh, already talk about, you know, which genes would we need to alter in human beings to make them more resilient to, to
2: space travel. I mean, it's absolutely bizarre, isn't it, when you start thinking about what might be possible right now. Um, I've got a, this really interesting question um, from someone online, De uh, D'Souza, who has asked, how should consent be dealt with, especially with germline editing? And should individuals be able to make decisions about their own genetic enhancement? Or should society as a whole have a bigger say in how far gene editing is allowed to go? Shani, do you have any thoughts on this?
7: I think, as I said earlier, that I'm glad... The option for gene editing exists. Just, you know, Jim is a brilliant example of that. Enhancements is, is a different arena, isn't it? I feel like society already dictates that some bodies are more valuable than others. So we, we kind of already have that. So, you know, if you're not able to work or be productive in society, then you're seen as less valuable and, you know, benefit cheap, that kind of narrative. I feel like we're already there, but no, I I don't think that society should. I think it should be an individual decision, but not about enhancements, about editing.
2: Yeah, and and what this question is getting at is this the germline editing? So it's yeah. not where it goes beyond just you you yeah, and your yeah, body, but yeah. if you had kids, yeah, they would also potentially take that on. I mean, this is we're talking about editing out literally the evolution of the human species. Yeah. And I wonder if you guys have um, thoughts on this in terms of consent around this and who should be making those decisions?
5: I mean, uh, if, if we decide as a society to do that, then they're literally the only people who can give the consent, consent to the parents. Um, I mean, I think the easiest thing in the world would be to say, no, we should never do it. But I think you very rapidly end up with situations where you think, well, is it, is it wrong not to do it?
4: I'm going to be really contentious here and say it's already happening. Sorry, the lives, in the sense of literally, the life you live in the body that you are in prior to having children will impact how your children turn out, right? No one's asking me, oh, Ganesh, should you put the burger down? Stop eating fatty <laughs> things, you know? Don't, you know no, no, but I'm being serious. Mm. Like, it sounds like I'm being ridiculous, but it's true, sorry. Yeah. The lives we live already impact the next generation. Mm. Actually, I think Shani said something that was really key to this thing. I think CRISPR has held up a mirror mm. to us all and how uncomfortable we feel actually about the control that we as human beings have. I think that's actually what's happening. So far, we've done all sorts of things, human beings have changed all sorts of stuff, right? As I said before, ain't nothing natural about what's happening right now. But we've never really felt quite so like, Hi, what would you do <laughs> <laughs> about it, right? And we're we're having that moment where the microphone is being shoved into our faces collectively, and I think a lot of us are feeling that natural instinct to shrink back and go. Oh, well,
5: mm. Also, I mean, I'd add in terms of. germline editing of my children, you know, the idea that I'm creating something that goes down the generation. The power I have to already do that in simply choosing who my wife is, is considerably larger than CRISPR and considerably, you know, more control given we do understand what's going to happen there. You know, my my wife, I've already got got a whole suite of genes which I'm going to get half of in my children or my children are going to get half of. And I can see how they've turned out there.
2: So it's almost as if you're inviting us to think about what we already can do and we already have control over and to then re-evaluate re- what control in this context actually means. Look, the conversation is fascinating. We have literally one minute left. Um, do we have time for one more question? One more question from the floor. And you've been waiting very patiently, so I'm going <laughs> to allow you to come forward.
0: Thank you very much. I think quite often we, we see that legislation and ethics can kind of fall behind the development. And then you also talked about how ethics can then run ahead of what's actually capable. Do you think that that's kind of an unhelpful sci-fi vision, or maybe it can actually, or, or even cause fear mongering, or kind of help predict and anticipate legislation so that these things can be regulated better?
4: That's a really, really cool question, I think. Well, I think that this is a tool and that human beings choose how they wield their tools. So the fact that this conversation runs way ahead of what the science is capable of is a really good thing because it helps us process as a collective what we want to do and don't want to do. Another arena in which we already do that, which is far less scary sounding than like regulation and legislature and all that sort of stuff, is sci-fi, actually. Science fiction books and like... TV shows and things like that, they allow us to run the thought experiment and imagine these things and to to sort of engage with these ethical quandaries in a really tangible and fun kind of way, but also genuine way. And they do shape how we feel about it. And what I'm ultimately saying is the conversations we have will shape how we feel about using the tool. The tool doesn't change. It will just change how we feel comfortable or don't feel comfortable
7: using it ultimately. So more, more conversations. Roshani. And briefly, just to add, I took part in the NHS's 100,000 Genome Project. And um, so I went and gave my blood, as did my mom and dad. And it was to try and see if we could find out why I was born with the condition. And for years and years and years, we we're like, yeah, we haven't found anything. And then they wrote to me back, I think, in t- a few years ago. <laughs> and they said, we've got some news for you. And I never did anything about it. And I found that letter the other day, and I just think (laughs) I forgot about it. But like, what's going to change in my life, really knowing about it? Like, Mm. like if I was really interested, then cool. But and and like, one part of me does want to find out, but it's not going to change anything. And actually, my mom was like, "Oh, why do you want to blame one of us?" Is in the moment. I was like, "No." I was like, "But you know, but I did. I wanted to be part of that project." to also help, you know, with yeah. science and future generations as well. So you're absolutely right. These, these tools are tools, but really the change we think that they might make, to some people it doesn't matter, and we don't want it.
2: Yeah, and this is the importance of having a collective conversation like we've had tonight. And it has been a scintillating conversation. I have certainly found it thought-provoking. I'd like to extend my thanks to Shani Danda, Ganesh Taylor, Jimmy Olahera, thank you so much for joining us, and Tom Whipple. And I'd also like to thank Intelligence Squared for putting on this event for all of us together, and of course our hosts, the Crick Institute. Um, The brilliant cut and paste exhibition, which is on here at the Francis Crick Institute in London, is going on until December 2023, but don't wait until then to go and see it. If you haven't seen it already, please go now. And obviously, finally, a massive thank you to our amazing audience for all of your thought-provoking questions. Thank you for joining us this evening. Good night.
1: What are you doing right now?